At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have back with me today, after a little hiatus, Dr. Jillian Isaac for another keyword episode. This is going to be a great one, and we're going to talk about two really key issues. First, non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers, and second, myasthenic syndromes, both highly tested things on the board exams. So let's jump right in. Jillian, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Yeah, so like Dr. Wilpaw said, our first topic is non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. And I think this is probably one of the highest yield keyword episodes that I've done because so many questions on the basic and the advanced and the ITE revolve around um, these medications because we use them every day. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of questions that can come from them, but a lot of things that we need to know about them in terms of like indications, contraindications, side effects, drug interactions. So it's a it's an important topic. And um, I know that it seems like we've done this before, but we haven't. I looked through all my old keyword podcasts. I know we've done succinylcholine, but what I like is I feel like we're starting to come full circle and you start to see the overlap in these outlines. Like I think when you look at the outline that's published by the ABA, it's really overwhelming because there's just like, lists and lists of words. But what you see is they start to come back. So for example, when we did renal failure, we asked some questions about neuromuscular blockade because it's affected by renal failure and the same thing with liver failure. So you may see some questions come back and kind of see overlap, but I think that's actually a really good thing because as you start studying and you go through certain things, you'll see the overlap again and again. And that also helps you realize where the high yield topics are. So if you look on the ABA content outline, this is under the basic but keep in mind that 30% of the advanced exam is basic and about half of the ITE is basic. Uh, and it's under pharmacology and it's muscle relaxants, non-depolarizing. And they want you to know about the mechanism of action, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, prolongation of action, synergism, metabolism and excretion, side effects and toxicity, indications and contraindications, antagonism of blockade and drug interactions, specifically antibiotics, anti-epileptics, lithium, magnesium, inhalational anesthetics. And this is a very similar list to any drugs. Basically, any drug that they give you, they want you to know these things. Now, what's being tested? It's a little bit all over the place. So I actually put it in chronological order this time rather than an order of importance. Um, So back in 08, they were uh, asking about neuromuscular blockades and chronic renal failure. Uh, They asked about pharmacology of vecuronium in 09. Then they asked about myasthenia and Eaton-Lambert and the effects of muscle relaxants in these syndromes, which we'll get to later. And that was tested in 08 and 2010. And then factors that prolong neuromuscular blockade was tested in 2008 and 2011. They asked about transmission ions and ED95s in 2011. They talked about phenytoin and neuromuscular blockade in 2012, as well as interactions with volatile 
um, volatile anesthetics. Interestingly enough, they asked about non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drugs and hyperparathyroidism in 2014, 2017, and 2020. So this is a more current topic, and they've been asking about that you don't see it in like the older test questions that have been released. They're asking about the side of action. I know that's been on the basic in the past several years. Um, blockade recovery and reversal. Again, that's a very high yield topic. So that was tested in 08, 2010, 2018, 2019. Brainstem reflexes and these drugs in 2019 and then monitoring 2019. So you see it's, it's tested frequently a little bit all over the place. It's hard to exactly pinpoint what they're going to ask, but they're going to ask something. So we're going to start with our first key point, which is mechanism of action. And non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers act on the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor alpha subunit and prevent the ion channel from opening and thus prevents propagation of an action potential. So the key words that are in this key point are pharmacology, mechanism of action, site of action, ED95, and indications. So here's our first question. So we have drug A. It's an intermediate acting, non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocker with an ED95 of 0.3 milligram per kilogram at a dosing range of 0.6 to 1.2 milligram per kilogram. Intubating conditions can be reached in one to two minutes with effects lasting until 20 to 35 minutes. Higher doses can be used to provide intubating conditions similar to succinylcholine in a short onset of time, like one minute. Drug A's direction, duration of action is much like longer acting non-depolarizing drugs. What is the site of action of drug A? Gee, this um, sounds so, familiar. It does, right? So I like this question because they don't give you the drug, but they give you a lot of hints to what the drug is. So you have to first just, you know, in your head, say what the drug is and then answer the question. So the options are A, pre-junctional calcium channels, B, alpha subunit of the acetylcholine receptors, C, the beta subunit of acetylcholine receptors, D, actin myosin complex. So what's drug A, Jen? Dr. Yeah, so you, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully the name rocuronium jumped out at everybody, even from just thinking the dose range of 0.6 up to 1.2 for a rapid sequence, that it would be at that higher dose, much like succinylcholine. So hopefully all of this sounded a lot like rocuronium. And as you just said, Jillian, when we talk about non-depolarizers, they block the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor at the alpha subunit. And so that would point us to be the alpha subunit of the acetylcholine receptor. And I know that's a very fussy, nitpicky detail, but I know that they've asked that specifically in the past. So they want yeah. you to know that level of detail, especially for the basic. And that leads into our next question, which is the unique advantage of rocuronium of over other muscle relaxants is it's A, short duration of action, B, metabolism by pseudocolonesterase, C, onset of action, D, lack of need for reversal. And really, it should have said over other non-depolarizing muscle yes, relaxants. Um, and so, you know, I think in, on a real exam, it would probably clarify that. And so the advantage is, of course, the onset of action that at a high dose, uh, it's going to be, as we said in the last question, pretty close to um, the onset of action of succinylcholine. Yeah. And I didn't know this until I was preparing this podcast that the first two letters of the word rock uranium stand for rapid onset. I didn't so know that either. Testing. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so now I know RO is rapid onset. So it has the, of all the non-depolarized, rocuronium has the most rapid onset of action at clinically useful doses. So you can use it to get intubating conditions quite quickly, like with succinylcholine. Okay. Here's the next question. Select the true statement regarding interaction of non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drugs when durations of action are dissimilar. A, if a long-acting drug is administered after an intermediate-acting drug, the duration of the long-acting drug will be longer than normal. 
B, if a long-acting drug is administered after an intermediate-acting drug, the duration of the long-acting drug will be about the same as expected. C, if an intermediate-acting drug is administered after a long-acting drug, the duration of the intermediate-acting acting drug will be about the same as expected. And then D, if an intermediate-acting drug is administered after a long-acting drug, the duration of action of the intermediate-acting drug will be longer than expected. So it's a bit of an odd question, but I think the concept is solid. Yeah. So what do you think? I think this is confusing, and I I would encourage listeners not to get too hung up on this, but Mm -hmm. I think the answer here is D. And what they're getting at, and that's, I'll read it again, if an intermediate-acting drug is administered after a long-acting drug, the duration of action of the intermediate-acting drug will be longer than expected. And the reason, what they're trying to get at here, is that if you've given a long-acting drug, it's going to take three half-lives of that long-acting drug for it to go away enough that really now you're back to just the kinetics of the intermediate acting drug. And so let's just say you've given pancuronium and then you give vecuronium. You would expect maybe because you gave vec that the vecuronium effect would wear off in the normal amount of time you would expect for vec, but you will still have blockade because after just one dose of vec, you've still got your pancuronium predominating. And then you give a second dose of vec and still you've got not enough time because to get to three half-lives of pancuronium, you really have to go up to like your third maintenance dose of vecuronium. At that point, once you get that far in, you've now waited enough time for three half-lives of the pancuronium. And now you will see your vecuronium start to do its normal duration of action. And so that's what they're getting at. It's a little confusing because it makes it sound like the pancuronium is somehow changing the action of the vecuronium, but I think what they're just getting at is you have to know that a long-acting medication is going to predominate until three half-lives have gone by. Right. Maybe it's a little bit like midazolam and flunazolam, right? Like you reverse midazolam and things look great, but then the flunazolam goes away quicker than the Versed, so you get the effects right. of Versed again. So. Right, or the Narcan with, uh, right. um, with uh, heroin. Okay. Which of the following muscle relaxants is most suitable for rapid intubation in a patient in which succinylcholine is contraindicated? Again, I really encourage when you guys are preparing for standardized tests, if you can answer the question in your head before you look at the answer choice options, 99% of the time, that's the correct answer. So you should be able to read this and think, okay, that's the answer without the options. But here are the options. Atricurium, rocuronium, vecuronium, cisatricurium. Right. And we've kind of already talked about this, but if you can't use socks and you need that rapid onset, you're going to want to use rock your running. Okay, perfect. So that leads us to our next key point is that each non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drug is metabolized and or eliminated differently. Um, so in my head, I kind of lump vecuronium and rocuronium together, even though they're slightly different. Vecuronium undergoes about 30 to 40 percent of its metabolism by the liver uh, and is then eliminated by the liver and the kidney, about 50-50. Rocuronium is mostly eliminated by the liver, but it's 50 to 75 percent and the rest is renal. So they're very, very similar in the terms of their like elimination from the body, whereas pancuronium is mostly cleared through renal excretion. And then cisatricurium is the one that's really unique and it undergoes Hoffman degradation. So it doesn't rely on either renal nor hepatic systems to be cleared. And it's interesting, when I was a resident, I feel like I used to curium a lot in liver and renal failure. And I don't feel like we do much anymore, but it's something that I used a lot in training. I don't know if it's expensive or just isn't really made much anymore, but I don't feel it like It is we- more expensive. We, we yeah. still, 
it's used a fair amount in kidney transplants still, though you don't have to, depends on, you know, you just have to be careful if you're using something else. But, um, but yeah, I think because it's more expensive, it tends to be used less. Um, and then I would point out that- a common, uh, common test question. <laughs> yes, for sure. And I, oh, absolutely. And I would point out that uh, when we say liver, so that VEC is 30 to 40% metabolized by the liver and eliminated by the liver and kidney, that some of that is, is specifically through the biliary system. So they're including biliary in the liver for both VEC and ROC. So that's going to be important. Right. Okay. So our first question, and these are the keywords that are covered in this key point. So pharmacology, factors causing prolonged blockade, metabolism and excretion, neuromuscular blockades and chronic renal failure, and then indications and contraindications. Okay. So the neuromuscular effects of an intubating dose of vecuronium are terminated by A, diffusion from the neuromuscular junction back into the plasma, B, nonspecific plasma cholinesterases, C, the kidneys, D, the liver. Yeah. And I remember talking about this actually when we did our succinylcholine one that, you know, this is a little tricky because the actual uh, intubating dose effect termination is just because it diffuses away from the neuromuscular junction into the plasma. So that's the key thing to know for, for blockers. And that's the case here. It is going to, of course, eventually be processed by the liver, the kidneys, et cetera, but it has to get to the plasma first. And when it gets to the plasma, it's going to leave the junction alone. Now, if it's not processed or if you keep giving more, it will, of course, follow its concentration gradient. So it'll go back to the, um, to the junction. But as long as you've only given one dose, as it says here, it's going to diffuse out into the plasma because there won't be any left in the plasma. Yeah. And this is actually one of the common knowledge gaps. So the ABA, after they give a test, whether it's the ITE, the basic or the advanced, they'll publish a list of what residents are missing. And this is very, very common on that knowledge gap that it actually, the effects are terminated by diffusing away and then it's metabolized slash excreted differently. So it's just, it's a good thing to keep in the back of your mind. It's a very common test question. Okay. Next one. In patients with renal failure, which of the following muscle relaxants has the most prolonged elimination half-life? A, atricurium, B, pancuronium, D, succinylcholine, D, vecuronium. Great. So this is a great example of one that even if you weren't sure and had just heard what we discussed, you could probably eliminate some of these. So you think, okay, I know cis-atricurium and atricurium have that Hoffman elimination. So that probably is, we can get rid of atricurium. Succinylcholine, you know, we know that is, is, does its own thing. That's different. So we can get rid of that. So that leaves us pancuronium and vecuronium. And then that's where you get down to, okay, if you don't have any idea, then 50-50 chance. But like we talked about, pancuronium is more reliant on renal um, and less on liver than VEC. And so the answer is going to be B, pancuronium. Pancuronium is almost 100% renal, whereas we talked about VEC and ROC are very similar, kind of like 50-50. All right. So next one is a liver failure. So a patient with jaundice who has a minimally elevated AST, markedly elevated alkaline phosphatase, and normal prothrombin time is to receive a muscle relaxant. Which of the following is most likely in this patient? A, decreased intubating dose of pancuronium. B, increased intubating dose of cystatricurium. C, prolonged duration of succinylcholine effect. D, prolonged duration of vecuronium effect. Right. So the first thing is to identify what's going on with this patient, right? So they have jaundice a little bit of an elevated AST and a marked elevation in their ALKFOS. So this is a patient who you should identify has some liver failure and some biliary issues because of the ALKFOS. So you think, all right, they've got some liver failure and some biliary um, insufficiency. So this is somebody who 
we have identified as that. So now let's go through our choices. Decreasing the intubating dose of pancuronium. Well, we said pancuronium is almost entirely reliant on renal excretion, so that shouldn't matter, assuming this patient has normal renal function. That, and I don't know if intubating with pancuronium is the uh, best Yeah, idea. right. That in and of itself is, would be a terrible, a terrible option. You could do it, I guess, but yeah. it would, you'd have to wait a long time. The intubating dose of cisatricurium should not change because, again, that's Hoffman elimination. Uh, prolonged duration of succinylcholine. So we can get into the effect of, of we, we did actually discuss the effect of liver failure on succinylcholine back in uh, our podcast where we went over succinylcholine, but that is certainly not going to be as likely as the following, which is prolonged duration of the vecuronium effect. So vecuronium, about half-ish reliant on the liver and the biliary system. And so in liver failure, you're going to see a prolonged duration. Right. And very similar question. Well, next one's renal failure, which I think we talked about in the renal failure podcast. But in a patient with chronic renal failure, which of the following statements concerning muscle relaxants is true? A, duration of action of vecuronium is prolonged. B, elimination half-life of cis-atricurium is tripled. C, reversal with neostigmine is contraindicated. D, succinylcholine is contraindicated. Right. And so there, we kind of went through it already, but the duration of action of VEC is going to be prolonged and those others are not accurate. Right. And just to really hit it home so you'll never miss these again, which of the following muscle relaxants is eliminated the most by renal excretion? Without even looking at the answer choices, hopefully you know, but A, pancuronium, B, vecuronium, C, atricurium, D, rocuronium. Right. And the answer is A, pancuronium. Compared with a patient without liver disease, a patient with cirrhosis will have A, greater accumulation of vecuronium with infusion, B, more frequent occurrence of phase two block after succinylcholine administration, C, prolonged elimination half-life of cis-atricurium, D, unchanged volume of distribution for pancuronium. Right. And so with liver disease, we will see an accumulation of vecuronium with infusion. So that should be pretty clear. Phase two block with succinylcholine, again, we've discussed in the past, but you need really large, large doses to see that. Prolonged elimination half-life of cisatricurium is not affected at all by, uh, by organ function. And then the volume of distribution for pancuronium definitely can change in, the, uh, in patients with liver disease because, again, volume of distribution can change. And that's just going to be true. That's not about elimination. So I like this next question because we're starting to see more and more pharmacology that they're asking about age. Like, is it altered by age? Um, and that's been in the, like the past five years. So that's, I love, I like this question because it is actually asking about aging, but the recovery index of which of the following non-depolarizing muscle relaxants is not altered by aging. A, cisatricurium, B, vecuronium, C, rocuronium, D, pancuronium. And here you have to make the slight leap to say, as people age, their organ function decreases normally, right? Every, everybody, even if you don't have organ disease, you will have over time decreasing your renal function little by little. And so the question really is asking, which of the following is not affected by organ function? And so the answer is A, cisatricurium. So that leads us to our next key point, which is key point three, that interactions between the neuromuscular blocking drugs and several anesthetics and non-anesthetic drugs have been reported. These include antibiotics, anti-epileptics, lithium, magnesium, and inhalational anesthetics. So these are really common questions too, asking about um, the interactions here. So the keywords that cover under this topic are drug interactions, factors causing prolonged blockade, volatile anesthetic and neuromuscular blocking drug interactions, and then neuromuscular, um, I put it down wrong, sorry, I read it wrong, but (laughs) 
these drugs and hyperparathyroidism. So here's the first question. Each of the following drugs can enhance the neuromuscular blockade produced by non-depolarizing muscle relaxants, except A, calcium, B, aminoglycoside antibiotics, C, magnesium, D, IV lidocaine. All right. So even if you don't know about these things like antibiotics, you should hopefully know that calcium potentiates the action of muscles. We give it to help the heart muscle. It's often used in, or thought of almost as a presser in hypotension, especially when people are low, it, because it, it gives, it helps charge up muscles. So those are all ways to think that calcium does the opposite of what they're asking here, right? So they're asking which one, um, which of the following neuromuscular drugs, uh, which enhances neuromuscular drugs or which they're actually asking except. So they're asking which does not enhance the effect of neuromuscular drugs. You should think, yeah, calcium does the opposite of enhancing the effect of neuromuscular blocking drugs. So calcium is the answer here. And then you would just have to know that aminoglycoside antibiotics, you certainly should know magnesium does. That's a super commonly tested thing on OB, et cetera. Um, and then lidocaine, these things can potentiate, but calcium is the one that does not. Yeah. And I just want to point out, I couldn't find a question about it, but I noticed that they've tested this three times in the last year, which is hyperparathyroidism and our neuromuscular blocking drugs. And I read a case report that in primary hyperparathyroidism, even in the absence of hypercalcemia, you may still get resistance to competitive blockade. Um, the paper was specific to rocuronium. So it suggests that primary hyperparathyroidism may cause acetylcholine receptor upregulation, resulting in hyposensitivity to these drugs. So I just wanted to put it there just because I've noticed that they've tested it. I couldn't find a good question, but keep that in mind that it may or may not be related to calcium in that patient population. Great. Which of the antibiotics below does not augment neuromuscular blockade? A, clindamycin, B, neomycin, C, streptomycin, D, erythromycin. Such a mean question. <laughs> it's really tough. This is really tough. And so you, you kind of either have to know that macrolide antibiotics, which is the, of, the, of these, the one that is not, that is a macrolide is erythromycin, and those do not potentiate neurovascular blockade. So the answer is erythromycin, but you know, this is one of those ones you either know or you don't. Yeah. So the aminoglycosides, which are neomycin, streptomycin, gentamicin, tobramycin, and then the lincosamides, which are clindamycin and lincomycin can augment neuromuscular blockade. And I think they named antibiotics so poorly because they're all mycins, but they're a different class. Whereas the erythromycin is, as um, Dr. Wilpa said, is a macrolide and they don't potentiate neuromuscular blockades. But I remember once, I was very early in my career, I had a patient who was an OB and had to have a stat GA section and she was preeclamptic. So she was on magnesium and she was penallergic. So she received clindamycin and then we gave her neuromuscular blockade and she was, I mean, parallel. I mean, it took hours for it to wear away. And so I always remember like that case about how these drugs can really potentiate each other and how long it took for her twitches to come back with all those meds on board. Yep. Which leads us to our next question. Administration of magnesium sulfate for treatment of preeclampsia results in a decreased dose requirement for each of the following drugs, except A, bupivacaine, B, midazolam, C, succinylcholine, D, vecuronium. Right. So again, we kind of talked about this, but you want to know that magnesium will potentiate neuromuscular blockers. So because this is an accept question, we know we can get rid of vecuronium and succinylcholine. And so that leaves midazolam and bupivacaine. You'd kind of just, again, at this point, if you have no idea, have to guess, but you should think, well, 
you know, if you've done OB anesthesia, you think, well, we don't really decrease the dose of bupivacaine when we do epidurals or spinals when a lot of women on OB are on magnesium. So it's probably a good guess to go with bupivacaine. And that is the right, right answer here. Right. And you have to be careful in that patient population in general, because magnesium, and that's a really common question. You should know everything about magnesium in terms of how it affects um, muscle depolarization, cardiac depolarization, but also it's very synergistic to other drugs. So you have to be very careful. A lot of the drugs that we use, you don't need nearly as much, if at all. And there's a, we call it being magged out. Like, it's like <laughs> there's this look to patients around mag, but it, it does cause, it can cause very significant muscle weakness. So you have to be really careful when you're using um, these non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockades. And a lot of time I have learned that you actually probably don't really need them if you're doing a GA section in that situation. All right. Stay with us. We'll be right back with another question in just a minute. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right, next question. Select the correct statement regarding the effects of volatile anesthetics on non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drugs and the reversal agents. A, volatile anesthetics potentiate neuromuscular blockade but retard reversal agents. B, volatile anesthetics potentiate both neuromuscular blocking drugs and reversal agents. C, volatile anesthetics retard both neuromuscular blocking drugs and reversal agents. D, volatile anesthetics retard neuromuscular blocking drugs but potentiate reversal agents. Yeah, it's interesting. So I think it's pretty clear, or hopefully most people would know that volatile anesthetics potentiate neuromuscular blockade. Uh, the trickier part is what it does to reversal agents. And I do think it can have some effect retarding them. In some ways, this is mostly something that isn't going to come up because it's very rare not to be getting the volatile anesthetic off at the end of a case at the same time you'd be reversing. So, you know, I guess if you still, if you're doing like a deep extubation and so you still had a lot of, of, of volatile on board at the end and you were trying to reverse, you should know that that might inhibit your reversal. I think this was probably a question written before uh, Sugamidex. I don't know the answer as to whether this is true with Sugamidex or whether this is related mostly to, to neostigmine. I don't know if you know that, Jillian. I don't. My guess is it's probably pre-Sugamidex myself. Yeah. But it's just good to know that it can affect, that recent studies have shown that antagonism of neuromuscular block is slowed by volatile mm -hmm. anesthetics. Just a good factoid to know. Yep. All right. So our next key point is recovery and reversal. So post-operative residual neuromuscular blockade is actually a fairly common occurrence. And up to 60, 60% of patients with residual weakness in the PACU did receive adequate reversal. Um, so it's not an uncommon thing that we see is residual weakness. Not enough that it caused you need to intervene and help with um you know, airway, but enough that people feel a little bit like weak in the PACU. So what percentage of neuromuscular receptors could be blocked and still allow patients to carry out a five-second head lift? A, 5%, B, 15, 1,5%, C, 25%, D, 50, 5,0%. Yeah, and this is one of those things that if you don't know, you got to ask yourself, what point are they trying to make? And right. that, and I think the point here is that you can still have a lot of, of receptors blocked and still be able to lift your head for five seconds. So the answer is 50%. And the point is that 
you should not assume that because a patient can lift their head or squeeze your hand tightly or because they seem strong, that that means they're adequately reversed or, or not going to have any post-op um, residual weakness because they certainly can. And so the, the real t- clinical takeaway from this is that if a patient, unless you have an accelerometer, which can measure a very accurate train of four and you can document that they have greater than 90% recovery of their train of four, then you should be reversing your patients no matter how long it's been since they got um, a dose of rock or VEC. I always give reversal. Yeah. I should I say, I said rock or VEC. I should have said anything. <laughs> rock, VEC, yeah. Yeah. It's actually a, a common mistake that people think cisatricurium doesn't need to be reversed because it does Hoffman elimination. That is not true. It still needs to be reversed. So we want to keep all that in mind. And I like the next question because this is also really commonly asked. Uh, so after administration of a single dose of vecuronium, function returns last to which of the following muscles? A, adductor pollicis, B, diaphragm, C, laryngeal muscles, D, orbicularis oculi, E, rectus abdominis. Yeah, this is a really, I think, key question. So the um, what you want to know is when, what can I use as a good, reliable indicator of recovery? And so the answer here is going to be adductor pollicis. That's why we preferentially use that because once that comes back, we know that probably the muscles of airway protection are also back. If you're using the eye, the, the facial nerve and using the orbicularis oculi, which we often do because the both hands may be tucked and that's okay, but you have to know that that's going to come back first, both before the adductor pollicis and before the muscles of airway protection. So if you have, you know, questionable twitches, maybe you think you have two, three twitches in the orbicularis oculi, or maybe even have four twitches there, that doesn't mean you would have had four in the adductor pollicis, and it doesn't mean that you have adequate reversal of your and recovery of your muscles of airway protection. So the orbicularis oculi, I think, is first, and then the diaphragm and laryngeal muscles come next, and then the adductor pollicis, is that what you're saying, if I remember the order correctly? Well, so I think the di- the diaphragm is super Pretty robust, resistant. right? Yeah, yeah. So the di- and that's why many of you may have been in a surgery where the surgeon says, you know, how many twitches they have. You say they have zero twitches, and the, and the surgeon says that can't be true. I'm seeing the diaphragm contract. No, no, those things are absolutely compatible. The right. diaphragm, you have to be immensely deeply relaxed to have no diaphragmatic function. The diaphragm is an incredibly robust muscle. So when we monitor for neuromuscular reversal, we're actually not really monitoring for diaphragmatic return. We're monitoring for airway protection. And so, you know, I can't tell you for sure, but I think the diaphragm it often won't First, even, it'll, right. it'll be back long before anything else. Um, or it, it may be that it's, you know, the adductor poly, uh, that the um, orbicularis oculi will come back pretty quickly too. And then eventually the adductor pollicis and the muscles of airway protection will be last. All right. So the next key point, um, and again, this isn't really a key point. It was just kind of the hodgepodge category. I couldn't really find a nice place to put it, but they are questions that come up. So I wanted to go through some extra questions here. So which of the following muscle relaxants inhibits the reuptake of norepinephrine by the adrenergic nerves? A, pancuronium, B, vecuronium, C, rocuronium, D, cisetricurium. So again, you kind of have to know this or you don't, but you may remember that pancuronium, I mean, again, we, we almost never use it, but it certainly was known to increase heart rate. Right. Um, that was something you wanted to be aware of. And so pancuronium is going to be the answer here. You also right. could just ask yourself, look, I give rock, vec, cisatricurium. I know this says atricurium, but I give cisatricurium. You know, you've given these things and you probably have not seen a whole bunch of tachycardia with them, right? So you probably could say, eh, that doesn't make sense for those. 
And I put this other, this next question in because they do ask questions about neuromonitoring and the effects of the drugs we give on neuromonitoring. So uh, an otherwise healthy 16-year-old girl is undergoing posterior spinal fusion for thoracolumbar scoliosis. During the procedure, the most likely cause of a marked decrease in the amplitude of the somatosensory evoked potentials after stimulation of the posterior tibial nerve is A, administration of fentanyl um, for induction, B, administration of isoflurane 1.3 MAC for maintenance, C, administration of vecuronium 0.15 milligram per kilogram. D, a decrease in body temperature from 37 to 35 degrees Celsius. E, a decrease in cerebral spinal fluid pressure. Yeah, so what really the key thing here is to notice first that they asked about somatosensory, not right. motor. Exactly. If they had asked about motors, then the VEC would be a, a, a very, you know, tempting answer. But because it's sensory, it shouldn't be the VEC. And right. then again, opiates aren't going to have a huge effect. And it's again, not asking what has, if these things, other things have any effect, but what is going to have the most, what's most likely. And of these things, having a Mac that high, if you've done any of these cases, you should know that you can't, I mean, a, 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 even a full Mac, let alone a Mac of 1.3 is going to have a major effect on the somatosensory potential. So that's going to be your answer here. Right. So when they're asking about monitoring and the neuromuscular blocker drugs, you want to make sure that it's motor and not sensory. So you don't want to get confused there. So parse that out in your head first when they're asking about these questions, whether they're looking at motor responses or sensory responses. Which of the following drugs is least likely to cross the placenta? A, lidocaine, B, meperidine, C, midazolam, D, thiopental, E, vecuronium. And hopefully you have in your head that neuromuscular blocking drugs don't cross the placenta. So even if you don't know about those other things, you should know vecuronium does not. And so that's the answer. Yeah. It's commonly tested, which is why I wanted to throw it in there. And this is another one, which was burns. Uh, 10 days after sustaining burns over 40% of his body surface area, a patient requires greater than expected doses of vecuronium for adequate relaxation of skeletal muscle. The primary causes increase A, plasma protein binding of, uh, it says d tubercularin, but it could be any of them. Um, B, you know, you know let me start over. Sorry, you don't have to stop it. But in the question, it's an older question. So in the question stem, I change it for vecuronium, but in the answers, I didn't. So let's let's go back. So A, plasma protein binding of vecuronium. B, metabolism of vecuronium. C, number of acetylcholine receptors. D, renal clearance of vecuronium. E, blood flow to skeletal muscle. Right. And so hopefully this is really important, of course, when it comes to giving succinylcholine, as we've talked about in the prior episode. If a patient has extensive burns, after a few days, here this is 10 days out, they will develop these additional extrajunctional acetylcholine receptors. And so that is going to mean that if you're giving them non-depolarizers, they're going to require a larger dose. And it also means if you give them sucks, that's a huge problem and you can kill them by uh, causing a massive uh, potassium release. So we're finishing up now with that topic of non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking agents. But just to review, this is highly tested. This is a really high yield keyword section. If I had to guess what they're going to ask about, they're most likely to test about indications and contraindications, recovery and reversal, and then interactions with other drugs. But like you saw, you can get these kind of hodgepodge random questions in there that don't fall under those categories, but guaranteed a couple of test questions um, in this keyword section. Okay, so now we're moving on to neuromuscular diseases and disorders, myasthenic syndromes. Um, it just made sense because we were talking about basic stuff, and then this is in the advanced content. Um, so this is under the 
ABA outline neuromuscular diseases and disorders and what they want you to know. And they're very vague. They just say myasthenic syndromes, myasthenia gravis, Lambert-Eaton, and then congenital myasthenic syndromes. Um, if I looked up what was being tested, uh, myasthenia and postoperative ventilation was tested in 2016 and 2017. Looking at myasthenia gravis versus myasthenic syndrome, which is also called Lambert-Eaton, which is also called LEMS. So it's very confusing, but they like to ask those questions. And that was tested in 2010, 2011, 2014, and 2020. Pharmacological treatment in 2018, neuromuscular transmission and muscle relaxant effects in 2010 and 2019. Pre-op risk evaluation and ventilation again in 2011 and then 2019. Post-op management 2009, 2015, 2019. My guess in 2019, it was probably one question that it involved post-op management, ventilation, and muscle relaxant effects. So you see that was all tested in 2019, but it's probably just one question that comprised all those three keywords. And then effects on neonate, which is actually a really common question. That was tested in 2016 and 2018. So just to do a quick review, key point one, myasthenia gravis and myasthenic syndrome, which is again, also known as Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome or LEMS, L-E-M-S. They're two different autoimmune conditions that both result in weakness and muscle fatigue. Myasthenia gravis is an autoimmune disorder characterized by easy fatigability of the skeletal muscle and weakness. And the weakness seen in patients with myasthenia gravis is related to the autoimmune destruction or inactivation of the postsynaptic acetylcholine receptors at the neuromuscular junction, which then leads to reduced numbers of receptors and eventually complement system-mediated destruction of the postsynaptic end plate. So it's multiple reasons why you have destruction of those receptors. And I've seen them test that question, the complement system-mediated destruction. I couldn't find a question, but I know that they do ask about that from time to time. And then Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome is a paroneoplastic syndrome that is characterized primarily by proximal muscle weakness that generally begins in the lower extremities. It results from a presynaptic defect in neuromuscular transmission in which antibodies to the voltage-gated calcium channels result in a reduced release of acetylcholine at the motor end plate. So unlike myasthenia gravis, muscle weakness with Lambert-Eaton improves with repeated efforts and demonstrates less marked improvement with the administration of anticholinergic medications. Um, so the first, the key words here and the first key point is myasthenia gravis versus um, myasthenic syndrome. So which of the following statements concerning myasthenia gravis is true? A, neostigmine is inappropriate for antagonism of neuromuscular blockade. B, the number of acetylcholine receptors is decreased. C, plasma cholinesterase concentration is decreased. D, the risk for malignant hyperthermia is increased. E, succinylcholine is contraindicated. And so, again, if you think about it, we just dis- defined what myasthenia gravis does, and it is, in, in course, that the acetylcholine receptor um, number is going to be decreased. So B is going to be the answer. The rest of these are fine. So neostigmine, you, there's no reason you can't use it. Plasma cholinesterase concentration shouldn't be changed. The risk for malignant hyperthermia should not be changed. And succinylcholine is fine, though these patients are going to be resistant to succinylcholine. So the key is they're resistant to succinylcholine, and they are they require an um, uh, they're super sensitive to non-depolarizers. And then MH, there are certain disorders that are associated with MH, but myasthenias, the myasthenic syndromes are not. And that's important right. to note that they are not in any way um, related to MH. Right. Each of the following conditions is associated with upregulation of the acetylcholine receptor at the neuromuscular junction, except A, burn injuries, B, myasthenia gravis, C, prolonged bed rest, D, prolonged use of neuromuscular relaxants, E, upper motor neuron injury. 
And so again, the key here is that you're losing acetylcholine receptors, not gaining them in myasthenia gravis. So the answer is going to be B. All those other things can lead to upregulation. And therefore you have to keep that in mind, especially with the use of succinylcholine. So which of the following disease is associated with increased resistance to neuromuscular blockade with succinylcholine? A, myasthenia gravis, B, myasthenic syndrome, C, Huntington chorea, D, polymyositis. And before you answer, this is the type of question that you're going to get. You're going to have myasthenia gravis and myasthenic syndrome, and they're going to be your two answers on all of these questions. So that's why it's important to have it in your head, like the physiology of both. Exactly. So what you need to know here, as we've discussed, is that myasthenia gravis and not myasthenic syndrome is associated with a decrease in the number of acetylcholine receptors and therefore resistance to suck. So it's myasthenia gravis and Lambert-Eaton or myasthenic syndrome. You don't lose your sucks, your acetylcholine receptors, and therefore you're not going to have a decreased res- uh, sensitivity to sucks. So next one, hyperkalemia is not a risk for patients receiving succinylcholine with the following, A, multiple sclerosis, B, myasthenia gravis, C, Guillain-Barre syndrome, D, Becker muscular dystrophy. Right. And so you mentioned this earlier, there are some syndromes that are risk for hyperkalemia. Um, Three of them are here, multiple sclerosis, Guillain-Barre, and uh, Becker muscular dystrophy, but myasthenia gravis is not. So the answer is B. And the next question, the, the question is just pseudocholinesterase, A, is increased in patients with myasthenia gravis, B, is inhibited by glycopyrrolate, C, is inhibited by pilocarpine, D, is synthesized by the liver, E, reverses to satricurium blockade. Right. So the answer is it's synthesized by the liver, and we've discussed that in past episodes. Um, there, again, myasthenia gravis shouldn't have any effect on that. Glycopyrrolate doesn't do anything to pseudocholinesterase. Um, neostigmine can, but not glyco- glycopyrrolate. Um, not inhibited by pilocarpine, and then it does not, of course, reverse atricurium or cisatricurium. In fact, um, uh, it is, as we've talked about, Hoffman elimination for those. Yeah. And I put this question in here because I find that myasthenia gravis and Lambert-Eaton are very common distractor answers, especially when they're talking about um, neuromuscular conditions in general. Mm. So it's just, that's why I put it in there. Just be aware that they do put, they use them a lot as distractor answer choices. All right. So the next key point is that myasthenia can cause severe respiratory muscle weakness, and it's primarily treated using anticholinesterase drugs, most commonly pyrrhodostigmine, which function by increasing the amount of acetylcholine in the neuromuscular junction, but excessive administration can cause cholinergic crisis. So it's important to be able to parse out a myasthenia crisis versus a cholinergic crisis. So the key words here are preoperative evaluation, ventilation, pharmacological treatment, and then cholinergic crisis. So the first one is a 35-year-old woman with severe myasthenia gravis is scheduled for a thymectomy. Which of the following preoperative pulmonary function tests is most likely to be normal? A, forced expiratory volume in one second, which is FEV1. B, forced vital capacity, which is FVC. C, is the FEV1 to FVC ratio. D, maximum voluntary ventilation. E, peak inspiratory force. And so the key here is realizing that this is a, it's weakness. It's not an obstructive defect. And so the, all the things that would require strength, like getting air out in a certain amount of time or your total amount of air, those are all going to be decreased. But the ratio of FEV1 to FVC, since both of those things will be decreased, the ratio should be relatively normal. So C right. is the answer. All those other things will be decreased. Right. 
So a 37-year-old man with myasthenia gravis arrives in the ED confused and agitated after a two-day history of weakness and increased difficulty breathing. ABG on room air is a PaO2 of 60, a PaCO2 of 51, bicarb of 25, a pH of 7.3, and a saturation of 90%. His respiratory rate is 30 breaths per minute, and his tidal volume is 4 milliliters per kilogram. After administration of edrophonium, his tidal volume decreases to two milliliters per kilogram. What should be the most appropriate step in the management of this patient? A, tracheal intubation and mechanical ventilation. B, repeat the test dose of edrophonium. C, administer neostigmine. D, administer atropine for cholinergic crisis. And hopefully it doesn't take a lot. If you know that a patient has a tidal volume of two mLs per kilo, you, you're intubating them. So, what, you know, and again, they've tr- you've tried giving edrophonium. That didn't help. And so, you know, you're not going to mess around with a patient already coming in, you know, not looking good with a SAT of 90%. Now they're hardly breathing. You're, you've got to know the answer here is to intubate them. Yeah. So a cholinergic crisis can be differentiated from a myasthenic crisis by giving a small dose of like um, edrophonium. So with the cholinergic crisis, you're going to have significant mus- muscarinic effects. So you're also going to see like salivation, bradycardia, meiosis, and accentuated, sorry, accentuated muscle weakness. And they didn't give you the other things, but they are talking about the muscle weakness. But because his tidal volume decreased with edrophonium, that's a diagnosis of cholinergic crisis. So you might need atropine to treat it. Right now, you really need to take care of his airway, like ABC, right? So airway breathing, that's more important than the atropine. So you need to intubate until the muscle strength returns. Right. And so that's really important, right? Is that someone who is taking, with myasthenia gravis, obviously they're at risk for myasthenic crisis, but they're also taking acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, which cause an increase in acetylcholine to get to the neuromuscular junction. So they can end up with uh, cholinergic crisis also. So that's, that's the key here is that it could be either one. You can't just know that they have myasthenia gravis and therefore assume it's a myasthenic crisis. And as, as you said, Jillian, the fact that they fail to respond to an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor would point you maybe more towards the cholinergic crisis. But again, here it doesn't matter because you're not going to wait, give atropine, see if it works. Right. The patient right. is, you know, could, could um, code at any time with, with a, uh, being in the extremis they're in. So you need to intubate them first. So the next key point is with neonatal myasthenia. So about 10 to 20% of newborns born to mothers with myasthenia gravis are transiently affected because the IgG antibody is transferred through the placenta. Uh, so the questions about this, a 33-year-old P1G0 with myasthenia gravis, well-controlled with pyridostigmine, is in labor and seven centimeter dilated. She has a headache and feels very nervous. Her blood pressure is 160 over 115. She has three plus pitting edema and urinalysis shows four plus protein. Appropriate manage of her labor should include A, lumbar epidural block with bupivacaine, B, chlorpro... I don't even know how do you say that. Chlorpromazine, 2.5 milligram administered IV. C, avoidance of narcotics. D, lumbar epidural block with two chlorprocaine. Um, e, chlorpromazine, 10 milligrams. Clearly, I do OB anesthesia, and I can't even say that word, so probably not yeah. PRE. <laughs> yeah, right. You, you've, you've definitely clued us in that chlorpromazine is probably not the right answer. <laughs> not that right, um, yeah. Right. So, you know, I think the answer here is this is a woman with myasthenia, gravis. She is um, certainly seems like she's got severe preeclampsia or is at risk for it. I'm pretty sure she meets the definition. So you want to treat her um, like you would anyone who you're trying to facilitate uh, her labor and get that baby out and make sure you control her her pain. Um, and so 
you certainly, I think, would want to do a lumbar epidural block. The question is whether to do bupivacaine or to chlorprocaine. And Jillian, I'm going to defer to you as an OB anesthesiologist as to why. Um, I think the answer here is bupivacaine, but why not to chlorprocaine? I can't tell you that. Yeah, so traditionally you're going to use 2-chlorprocaine if you're going for a section, especially like a stat section for fetal bradycardia, whereas bupivacaine is pretty standard for just the labor epidural. So I think what they're saying is that there's no indication here for a stat C-section, so we're just going to do a standard labor epidural, and that's why it's the bupivacaine. And I think really this question is saying that in myasthenia, especially if it's well-controlled, that neuraxial is not contraindicated, but I do also caution going very slowly. You don't want to get a high block really quickly, and I think also if you give a huge volume of 2-chlorprocaine, you may do that because um, you don't want to really knock out the chest wall muscle. So you want to mm. go careful um, with that. So maybe but that's why maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe like a huge powerful dose might be, you know, too overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So next one, a lumbar epidural is placed in a 24 year old G1P0 with myasthenia gravis for labor. Select the true statement regarding neonatal myasthenia gravis. A, the newborn is almost always affected with myasthenia. B, the newborn is affected by maternal IgM antibodies. C, the newborn may require anticholinesterase therapy. D, the newborn will need lifelong treatment. And so, as you said, it's possible to pass those IgG antibodies, um, but uh, not always. So it's not going to be A because it's not always. It's not going to be B because it's not IgM. It's transient, so it's not going to be lifelong. So the answer is C. They may require anticholinesterase therapy. And like I said before, it's about 10 to 20% of newborns with moms with myasthenia are transiently affected. And again, it's transient. Um, it's just, and it may take a few days to appear and it goes away after about six months. And uh, this is a common like peds anesthesia question that you're going to see. And so my colleagues are going into peds probably need to know this on a level that I don't, but it is a common test question. So in summary for the myasthenic syndromes, I think they're most likely to ask about differences between myasthenic, myasthenia gravis and myasthenic syndrome. And then they're probably going to ask about myasthenia and the non-depolarizing and depolarizing muscle blocking drugs. Um, they very often ask about myasthenia versus a cholinergic crisis, like what's a myasthenic crisis versus a cholinergic crisis. And then neonatal myasthenia is a really frequently tested question also. Fantastic. Jillian, this is great. Let's turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. You've always got great ones. I've read several books that you have recommended. Oh, have you? Yay. Absolutely. Um, so what do you have for us? What do you recommend? Well, so I, I do have a book, but actually before that, I want to, I have just been obsessed with this TV show called Ted Lasso. I don't oh, know it's you, the best. Oh, it's amazing. It is just so good. And you know, I'm a soccer fan, but I love that he's like this American. It's like you, Jed, like going to like coach a game that you know nothing about. Totally. Um, secretly being like, what's the right word? Uh, sabotaged by someone else. I won't give too much away, but it's just, there's so much depth. It's very funny and very clever. And the jokes are really witty, but there's so much depth to it. It's so much more than just that. It's about trying to be your best self, helping others be their best selves. It's about mental health, good friendships, you know, reaching out to others when they need it, knowing when to get help. It's just so good. I love it. I can't recommend it highly enough. Couldn't agree more. I'm one of the all-time best TV shows. Right? It's just that good. But if yep. you're looking for a really good book, um, I'm currently reading Hamnet, which is about, um, so it's William Shakespeare had three kids. He had a daughter, Susanna, and then he had twins named Judith and Hamnet. And both Judith and Hamnet um, got sick with the bubonic plague, but Hamnet died from it. And the book is about 
like William Shakespeare's like marriage and then kids and then his only son dying and then him writing Hamlet and how the death of his son probably really affected the writing of Hamlet. It's a, it's a fiction book. It's not even his, I mean, it's probably guess historical fiction. It's not nonfiction by any means, but it's beautifully, beautifully written. One of the best written books I've read in a long time. Hmm. Very cool. I'll definitely have to check it out. Thank you. Um, all right. Well, so uh, I think I've in the past recommended the Amicus podcast from Slate. Dahlia Lithwick is the host. They uh, cover all the stuff about the Supreme Court and and things like that. But uh, And I do recommend that. It's great. But I want to recommend a specific recent episode, which is her interview with Michael Heller, who uh, wrote a book called Mine, as in it's mine, not yours. Um, it's really interesting. He talks about the kind of human development around possession and our evolution in that in that sense and he gives really interesting examples uh, for example the fight on an airline over you know whether you can recline your seat or not and so some people will bring these things that you put on your knees that prevent the person from reclining their seat in front of you and then the question is whose space is that right who has the right is it can you recline your seat or can you stop someone from reclining their seat and interestingly airlines actually they purposely make that ambiguous so that people don't know, and therefore, they're kind of selling that space to both people, right? They're selling you the, the space in front of you, but they're selling the person in front of you the space behind them, and you don't really know whose it is, and it can lead to, to arguments and all kinds of things. It turns out that if you actually dig into the airline regulations, it does, in fact, belong to the person in the seat. So you have the right to, to recline your seat if it's a reclining seat, but... It's something that he gets into, you know, how we get taken advantage of by people kind of, you know, playing with ownership. And, and he goes all through ownership, what it means and how we interact. And then he also interestingly talks about, you know, let's say you don't want someone to recline into your space. Is there a way you can kind of negotiate with them? And evidently, they've done studies on this. So you can offer to pay them, but that doesn't work that well. But what works better than offering to pay someone is offering to buy them a drink, which is really interesting since that just is money. But I guess there's something around the kind of sharing food or drink that creates a relationship that people are more likely to kind of try to respect your needs. So that's his suggestion. If you want someone not to recline into you, ask nicely if they won't, if they would mind not doing it. And if you can buy them a drink as a thank you, that's your best bet. Anyway, that's interesting. Funny. Check out yeah. that episode. Yeah. When my kids were young and I would travel with them and Sean wasn't with me because he works more than I do. I take him. My dad lives in Utah, my mom, my uh, youngest sister's in California. So I routinely travel with my two younger boys and I would routinely buy drinks for like the people carry around us. Just, you know, if they were like fussy or having a bad totally. flight and it went a long way. <laughs> people were very understanding. Totally. Yeah, that's Have a, a beer good on call. me. <laughs> good call. Awesome. All right, Jillian, thanks so much All for right. coming on the show. No problem. All right. That was fantastic. Always great to do those keyword episodes and Jillian does such a good job. Hopefully you got as much out of it as I did. Let us know what you think. Go to ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw and we're at ACRAC Podcast. You can join the Facebook group or follow us on Instagram. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating or wherever you get your podcasts. But doing that really helps others find the show. If you would like to support the making of the show, you can do that in a few ways. It's on our website, but you can go to 
uh, patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a recurring patron. If you want to make individual donations, you can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC, or you can look up Jay Wolpaw on Venmo. We really appreciate everyone who has already become a patron or made a donation. It makes a huge difference, and we really appreciate it. Huge thanks, as always, to our amazing ACRAC team. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager, and our production assistants are Dr. Kimia Kashkuli and Dr. April Liu. Our original ACRAG music is by Dr. Dennis Quo, and you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAG podcast and Dr. Jillian Isaac, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.